0: podcast
1: one production hi I'm Helen McCabe founder of future women a club helping women to connect learn and lead over my career I've run teams inside newspapers edited a magazine and launched my own business this has meant building a team from scratch leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Very few people understand how their work relationships will change when they step into a big leadership position. Suddenly, you're accountable for your team's performance, and as a leader, you'll be subject to a new level of scrutiny. That can be difficult to navigate. Our guest today, Anna Bly, was a born leader, but nothing could fully prepare her for the intensity and the scrutiny which came from being the first female Labour leader and Premier in Queensland. Anna Bly, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. These are huge roles. Did you feel even more pressure because you were the first of your kind in the government? Oh, definitely. (laughs) Um,
0: They're very big jobs no matter who does them, and they have a lot of responsibility and a lot of weight on your shoulders. I think firsts are always in this position. You feel the extra weight of the, you know, the expectations and hopes um, of an entire gender. You know, every um, every political leader makes mistakes from time to time and I was always worried that it wouldn't just be seen as, you know, me having made a misjudgment or getting something wrong but that it would be seen by some sections of the electorate as evidence that women aren't suited for these jobs and that sense that that some people are not just judging you for your performance but judging you as a representative of you know, half
1: the population. So many people listening to this today will still be taking on firsts. What advice do you have for women today who are thrust into that role? Well, one of my um, favourite quotes about some of this sort of stuff
0: is that the first one through the wall always gets bloody, always. You know, I I think when you're smashing through things, it's inevitable that – you know, you, you, you will get, you know, kind of cuts and scratches as you, you know, break through the wall. So I think understanding that that's going to happen, being ready for it, not being thrown off course by it, and actually drawing strength from it, in a in a way. Um, you know, I said before that, yes, I was always conscious that people might be judging me as a representative of women and women in leadership generally but I found that actually very motivating. I, you know, I drew a lot of strength from it. I, you know, I would often sort of give myself a talking to, you know, and sort of play Jedi mind games about, you know, (laughs) you have to do this and you have to go in there and you have to do it well. And that scrutiny, I think people react differently to it, but if you are a first, you will always be scrutinised. Because in some ways you actually are representative of something. Um, You know, if it's not a representative of an entire gender, it's, it's a representative of change. Um, you know, if you are in an organisation or in a position or have taken on a role where you're the first woman to do it or um, the first person of colour to do it, you know, there will be curiosity. And as I said, I found that something quite empowering because it motivated me to, it made
1: me push myself maybe harder than I might have otherwise done. Those Jedi mind games are interesting uh, because... Obviously, that can be incredibly powerful. Is that something you've cultivated through your whole career?
0: That's an interesting question, Helen. Um, I don't know that I was consciously cultivating it, but I think um, certainly as I went into more and more senior positions, because I was in the cabinet for a long time and went into more and more senior roles um, in treasury and infrastructure Surprisingly, I was also the first woman education minister, so there was, you know, lots of firsts. And so every time I would go into something more senior that had more scrutiny, that had more, that was more untraditional for women and unconventional to have women in. Yeah, uh, you know, I felt a I felt a great responsibility to other women to do it as well as I could, and to not do it in a way that would make them feel I'd let the team down. And so yes, I you know I consciously would you know give myself little pep talks. Right, right. this is what we're doing today. Yep, we've never done it before, but we're going to go in and have a really good crack at it.
1: (laughs) I remember one of the things that always stuck in my mind that you told me after Anastasia Palaszczuk won the Queensland election. Um, You were watching that and you were just relieved. Mm. Can you explain Mm. why you were so relieved when she won? Well, there's
0: probably a couple of reasons, but well, firstly, in politics, inevitably, in a very robust democracy like Australia, um, there's lots of highs and lots of lows. And so, you know, winning an election in my own right, first woman to do it, you know, it was a very big high. Um, but then losing the next election was a very big low. And my fear about having lost that election was that it would be a long time, particularly, it would be a long time before the Labor Party or the electorate might be willing to have another woman in the role. And so to see someone like Anastasia, you know, win government back within one term, you know, was quite remarkable. And, you know, I talked earlier about the importance of firsts and I, I, because I think firsts are very symbolic. They do actually challenge people's stereotypes and make people think, oh yeah, I hadn't thought that, you know. So firsts I think are very important, but actually the real power I think, is when is the second and the third and the fourth. That's when you know that you've actually really made the change and you go from being a curiosity to being, you know, ha- having a rightful place at the table. So I was very relieved that, um, you know, nothing that had happened to me during my ups and downs of politics had made it difficult for other women to chart that course. But I was particularly relieved to see a second so quickly um, because it's, you know, when you think about other, Um, countries and states around the world, you know, in the last 20 years, many of them have had women leaders, but not many of them have had a second or a third and a fourth, you know, and particularly so quickly after one another, there's still a bit of curiosity value. And um, I think when it goes from curiosity to normal, that's the most powerful thing
1: you have said in the past that you would think about great leaders and the names that would come into your mind would be Nelson Mandela, John F. Kennedy, Paul Keating, Winston Churchill. And as a newly elevated Premier in Queensland, you could never quite hear your voice. How did you overcome that? And uh, tell us a little bit more about your thinking. Well,
0: I think voice and language are very powerful tools and they're critical tools in politics. Politicians, part of their job every single day, it is to prosecute ideas, and often to do that, you know, on the floor of the parliament in question time, which is a very robust place in Australia. So it's that combination of sort of knowing the your facts. I mean, that's you've got to actually feel confident that you know what what the answer is, but actually using voice and language to prosecute the ideas in a way Mm. that are you know compelling to people um, to. Use language and voice to critique your opponents in ways that are effective without being, you know, petty and too personal, but to be able to destroy their argument Um, or prosecutes, you know, this is where we're going to go and this is why we're going there and can elevate that up to a moment where people really want that thing to happen. So, yes, I would, I was very conscious. um, Male voices mostly, you know, I'd, Deeper voices that stay deep when they get cross, you know, as they get, if they're angry about something or they're really prosecuting an idea fiercely and passionately, they don't don't go up in register, whereas often for women they do. So I would think consciously and I'd try to be listening to the sound of my voice while I was making the argument. Am I losing the argument because I've gone too far up the octaves here, you know?
1: But I do There's think... There's that risk that you suddenly mm, sound hysterical or emotional yeah. and well, therefore the you get... the word people use is shrill, you yes, know. and you get and, undermined.
0: And you get undermined for that. And it's not just me that's, you know, when you think about the things that are convincing or compelling um, in other speakers and other politicians and other leaders, it's everybody. I mean, every man and woman, that's what they've heard. Um, you know, they hear Paul Keating, you know, across the chamber, um, you know, John Howard. I mean, these are strong deep voices of authority. Because men have been in those positions for so long, we think the voice of authority sounds a certain way. And it's only when you have more and more and more voices who are authoritative, who don't sound that way, that it starts to be normalised.
1: We do talk a about, bit about mm. this as well, like your brand in a meeting. Mm. Uh, it, it is something to be conscious of, how you express yourself, what your language is and... Of uh, what you the modulation and getting your facts, you know your your argument in order is a, is a key component of actually exhibiting leadership qualities. But of course, the most memorable of any speech in a parliament given by a woman which decimated the uh, opponent was Julia Gillard in that misogyny speech. And I was in my office with the question time going uh, in the background. I wasn't on a newspaper at that time. I was in a magazine. I was at the Weekly. I didn't need to be watching Question Time. Uh, some <laughs> still thought it was slightly odd that I did. And I just spun around and turned up the television. I could hear her just winding up. Mm. And I said, come in here. You all should watch this. It was just a startling thing yeah. to to witness live Uh, And you would know, you know, what that felt like when you actually are nailing it in the parliament and demolishing an opponent in a way that is aggressive Mm. and effective but not possibly as mean and nasty as we see in politics from the men sometimes. Question
0: time is not about question and answers. Question time is about... It's a sport. Well, it's about the theatre of politics and contest of ideas. Mm. And if people aren't passionate
1: about that, then we're in a terrible place. And owning that space. If you can own that space, then, you know, you can probably then lead that party or you deserve to be leading that country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: this country has elected several prime ministers that aren't from my side of politics while I've been um, alive. And while I may not have agreed with them on a lot of things, I always felt they wanted to lead the country, that they had strong views about where it should go. Like, I don't want a bloodless prime minister. You know, even if even if I violently disagree with some of the things they're doing or saying, you know, I don't want an administrator. You can't decide you want to put yourself up for political leadership and not have a voice and be prepared to be on the receiving end of, you know, cutting sarcasm from the other side as well and understand that it's theatre, you know, that this is not someone who's tearing me to shreds personally, although it feels like that at the moment, it's actually, this is what we're fighting about. We're fighting about big and important ideas. And I don't want the parliament to be run by administrators. I want people with big ideas, strong values, tossing
1: it out, tossing it around with each other. All of those principles apply across corporate Australia and in um, the lives of men and women who are considering leadership positions. It's, uh, it's about... It's
0: not as public sometimes. That's right. You know, what happens in corporate boardrooms you don't want a company run by a group of people who don't speak up at the board meeting you know you so yes you do really have to think about how you know how do you carry yourself in a way that sort of says I've got something to say and you know you shut up while
1: I say it. <laughs> Did, was there anyone that you admired or modelled your leadership style on?
0: So, you know, people like Peter Beattie, who was a great mentor, um, was someone who was always there, Um, you know, when I first joined the cabinet and watching how, you know, he got a disparate group of people to get behind any decision um, and often, you know, quite difficult decisions. But then there are people that you look at that you're never going to meet, you know, people globally Mm. who, you know, in my lifetime, I still think that Nelson Mandela is one of the great and inspiring leaders of the 21st, 20th century, not the 21st. Um, and I'm inspired by him because I think he did one of the most difficult things, and that is despite all of the terrible things that had been done to him, he was over to put all that to one side and put the interests of his people and his country first, and, and had to do that really through genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. And they're all words that we all use, but gee, they're hard. They are really hard. And we all like to think, particularly if you're in public office, but in any position of responsibility, if you're the CEO of an organisation, you know, if you're leading the local scout group, you know, any position of responsibility, um, you always like to think that part of the role is putting the needs of the people that you're leading um, and their, their interests before your own. But we're all not, we're all human. And when you've had When you've had lots of, you know, fights with people and disagreements and people have stabbed you in the back and, you know, done deals against you, it can be very easy. And I've watched people on all sides of politics um, get involved in, you know, petty feuds that last for a decade. So always trying to make yourself rise above those things, I think is really important. And I would often, when things were really bad, sometimes, you know, remind myself, of what, you know, the remarkable feat of someone like Nelson Mandela that really I didn't have anything to complain about compared to what he'd had to do.
1: I think you touched on a really interesting point though because in those feuds when it's a bloody battle Mm. and you're all in a game and you know the rules of the game and you know you have to be tougher than your opponent, you blink or show forgiveness Mm. or kindness or say let's have coffee and be genuine about it, that doesn't necessarily work out well for you. So how is it that you Mm. can turn that thought process and authenticity into long-term success in leadership roles?
0: Well, I, I think it's important to distinguish emotionally between friendship And leadership, if you like. Um, I once had a young woman who was the office manager and she was very, very good. And her motto was, I didn't come here to make friends. (laughs) It's kind of a joke, but it's sometimes I worry that as women, the desire to be liked and nice and thought of
1: as nice can be quite difficult to navigate in yourself. I think that's a very astute observation. I think many women do still struggle with the concept of even if, we're not especially nice. We like to be considered nice, and so that's a that's a constant tension. How would you like to be described as a leader? Oh, that's an interesting one.
0: Um, it's not in any particular order, but I think I think words like strong are important. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think really the thing that defines leadership is you're somebody that other people want to follow. You know, you've got something that makes people want to go with you. And, you know, that means I do think they want to know that you're going to have the strength and, and the courage of your convictions, that if you're going to take, you're going to set out on a course, that you're going to go the distance and see it through and, you know, and watch their back on the way through. You're not going to fold the first time it gets, things get tough. Um and someone's got a very clear idea of where we're going and why we're going there. Uh, and that's probably the kind of vision thing. And empathy. I think it's very hard to get a whole group of people to all head in one direction without understanding that for some people it's, it's harder than others and trying to understand why and help them along and, you know, think about redesigning your, your navigational path <laughs> if, you've, if you've missed that, if you've left people behind. You've got to understand that and
1: know how to go back and pick them up. There's a lot of contemporary thinking around leadership that authenticity and empathy are really important to successful leadership, but that wouldn't always have been the case. A leader who shows empathy or emotion in the past would have been seen as potentially weak. Do you think it is important to be a Uh, and empathetic and perhaps be quite vulnerable in front of your team? Um, At
0: times. (laughs) And look, that's, in my experience of leadership and also watching people, you know, lead well, it's actually this sort of every day, almost hour by hour, you're, as a leader, walking a path between sort of command and control style leadership you know, being decisive, telling people what they've got to do next. Um, you know, this is what we're doing. We're doing it now. And as w- and then sort of navigating back to when are the times you consult? When's, when is consultation finished? What are you going to take on board? You know, who's still struggling with the idea? And so you're actually, I don't think anyone as a leader is all one thing. And good leaders are able to sort of move between those sorts of styles of leadership, often on an hourly basis, um, and you know, when I look back at the time when the floods were happening, um, and I'm watching, you know, all of Australia's political leaders now through bushfires and COVID, and I do think a crisis demands more authoritative, decisive, command and control kind of leadership, particularly in the in the response. You know, people want to know when do I have to get out of my house and what time by? You know, we don't want to have a conversation about it. Just tell me what to do. And uh, because it's terrifying, and I just want absolute clarity about what I have to do. But then, as the response goes on and as you get more towards the recovery phase, people also then want to know that as you're making your next round of decisions, you understand how badly damaged I've been by the event, you know, that as a as an Australian, as someone who's lost their house, someone who's lost their job, you want to know that I'm not a number on a page and that you are, you are genuinely moved by the terrible circumstances that people are facing. And you'll recall Helen when I, you know, at one stage gave a speech during the floods, I didn't you know, I was very very clear that morning about my leadership task. You know, it wasn't a management task, it was actually to consciously go in and issue a rally cry. And that's how I thought about it. And so I had jotted down some sort of very lofty words and wanted to speak at that higher kind of elevated level. But as soon as I started it, my voice cracked and I started to tear up and I started to have to, you know, that terrible lump in your throat when you've got to finish what you're saying and eyes start watering and only I'm doing it all live on national television. And I felt that I had completely failed. I had one job, to go in there, to lift everybody's spirits, to make them feel that they could actually go out and face what had to be faced. And I had to do another 30 minutes of that press conference because we still had flooding happening everywhere. And I really felt, you know, in the back of my head I'm saying, oh, I had one job to do and instead of, you know, lifting everybody they'll all be really worried because what they've seen is a sniveling girl you know mm. and um it wasn't until i left the room that i understood that something completely different had happened mm. i had no sense that it had, had that impact and so of course i've gone back and thought about that a lot and um and i still i still have people it's nearly 10 years ago <laughs> i still have strangers come up to me and say you made me cry mm. and i realize that it was it it happened at a moment when actually everybody needed to grieve a little before they could feel rallied and, you know, off and at 'em and getting out the shovels and the brushes um, and brooms that everybody needed. They'd all been through this terrible emotional, mm. terrifying emotional, you know, roller coaster, and they needed to just stop and and grieve, have a little cry, and get it out, get all that fear and emotion out. And, and when they saw me do it, it kind of made them have permission to do it. But if I had gone into every press conference for four weeks and burst into tears, you know, people would have lost all confidence in me and the leadership. And so it is something you have to navigate. And sometimes, as I said, I didn't intentionally go into that press conference um, to tear up. As it turned out, it gave people licence at a moment that they needed it.
1: What is it like when you're in those rooms early in your career and even when you're in charge, when you're probably the only, but potentially one of very few women in the room? And how did you navigate those situations?
0: Well, it's an interesting question because you just, for many times in my early political career, it was the norm. And so after a while, I sort of stopped noticing it quite as much. Um, I'd I'd become familiar with the men in the room. I would know, you know, they're their style of working and be able to get the outcomes we were looking for. But then I would move to a new portfolio. And for me, every time I moved, it was into a less and less traditional role for women in politics. So going into the infrastructure portfolio, going into treasury, then becoming premier. Um, so every time you kind of confront it again. And uh, I'll tell you a story, Helen, because when I became treasurer... I had replaced, um, a long um, male treasurer and Peter Beattie was the premier and he, I thought a very good idea. He said, I think what we should do is have a series of boardroom lunches with you and I, with key leaders in different uh, economic sectors of the Queensland economy. So we had a lunch with all the tourism leaders. We had a lunch with all the mining leaders. We had a, um, a lunch with all the people out of the construction industry. I never noticed though, you know, I was the only woman in the room. And after the second one, Peter Beatty, we'd had it in Parliament House, and Peter and I were walking back to the parliamentary chamber, and he'd had this light bulb moment. Obviously, he said, "You know, I'm, this is going to you're going to think I'm stupid." He said, "But when Terry, who was my predecessor, when Terry and I did those lunches, I never noticed that they were all men. But now that you're there, it really stands out, doesn't it?" <laughs> I said, "Welcome to my life." <laughs> exactly. And to his credit, he said, "I sat there today and thought, how would I feel if I..." was the only bloke in the room all day, every day. Because, you know, we went straight from there to a Treasury um, budget meeting, where again, I was the only woman in the room. I said, and he said something about when he said that and I walked into the room with the budget, you know, 15 Treasury officials in the room, and said, look, and here's another one. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes you see it when other people, when you see it through someone else's eyes.
1: But I'm interested in to know what sort of, energy you bring to the room? Because I suspect when you walk into the room, pretty much everyone behaves. Or did you find there were times in your career where, no, they didn't behave. You were the girl at the back of the room and they just behaved as they would have always behaved. And if they did, did you pull them up on it?
0: I was going to say, I think it was more the latter. So there's different kinds of power, if you like, in different positions of leadership. And some of them, you know, what they call positional leadership, that is, the position carries its weight, its own weight and authority. And so in politics, you know, that's more often, that's the case. And yet, then people bring their own personal characteristics to that. But once you're elected, that accords a certain amount of sort of respect, is probably the word. Um, And that's not the same as someone admiring you. It's just they... You know, you're need the... you
1: to do something <laughs> That's for <right>. them.
0: <laughs> yes. You know, the, you're the local member and you can get something done for them so they, you know, come in and talk to you um, respectfully and politely. Uh, I became a minister very early on in my political career so I was in cabinet for 15 of my 17 years and so, you know, ministers, the position of minister is a very powerful position and, and I always think, you know, very powerful positions bring great responsibilities with them. Um, but, by and large, no, people behave when they're in the room. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't hear about things they say or do outside the room. <laughs> and that doesn't affect and that affects what you think about them when they're being polite inside the room. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as I said, I think if you've got real clarity of purpose, if you know why you really want something and therefore you are prepared to be out of your comfort zone, to be in situations that can be either hostile or awkward or, um, or just sort of hard to navigate, if you've got that clarity, and I, I don't think that's an easy thing to have, I should, you know, that don't, I don't for one minute think that's an easy thing to have, but having that, that clarity, why, what's the purpose, why am I here, what do I want to do, what do I want to do with these people in this room, and why do we want to come together and make this thing happen? And you've got to like yourself, you know, without, I'm not talking about having tickets on yourself, but... You've got to know that despite whatever the people in that room thought when you go home your family's still going to love you you love them you've got good friends you know you sort of I don't think women are ever entirely happy with themselves but <laughs> but you've got to have at least a sense of who I am and you know I'm not only the person in that powerful position I'm actually just daggy old mum you know when I'm at home and and for me that helped I think
1: making enemies is just part of Getting stuff done. Would you agree with that proposition?
0: Yes, I think. Is it Churchill it says? I think it's his saying that says, "Got enemies? Good. Means you've done something." <laughs> Correct, right? And, you know, it's a
1: it's and a saying because
0: it resonates. Mm. You know, you don't set out to make enemies. You set out to bring everybody with you, but it's inevitable that some people are going to say, "I don't want to be on this track. I don't want to come with you. I don't like what you're doing." Mm. And that that's as true. If you're doing something fabulous as it is when you're doing something that's terrible.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Worth remembering, isn't it? (laughs) I started when we arrived saying to you, congratulations, because there's some glowing reports around about you at the moment in terms of the work you're doing in the banking sector. Uh, But I recall when the announcement was made uh, that you were taking on this role there was all sorts. There was pages and pages of analysis and speculation that a certain future Prime Minister was very unhappy with the appointment. Uh, and knowing you, I, I knew you would uh, achieve what you've achieved. But how did you feel when you've gone through the fire of politics and you'd had uh, an incredible success in one sense and then the floods and all the adoration for your coverage, for your handling of the floods, then losing – uh, the election, and, and you're still in the middle of a firestorm uh, around the appointment. Did you take that in your stride, or were you like, "Oh, why am I still in public life? Why don't I just, why don't I just <laughs> um, have a quiet
0: life?" Yeah. Well, I took the role on. It was, um, it was, yeah, almost um, exactly five years after I lost the election. So I felt, um, you know, that. I'd sort of left some of that behind, but it was actually probably a very good reminder, you know, very early on, day one. (laughs) I was like, here we go again. I remember this. (laughs) So, yeah, put on the flak jacket, you know, put on the pith helmet. But I also, you know, it's funny, I feel like when I've looked at the things I've chosen to do in my life, I do like to run towards the fire. You know, it's where I find the satisfaction of wrestling things to the ground, solving gnarly problems you know, pushing, pushing, pushing things through. Mm. So, you know, they're often the places, I mean, it's very hot near the fire, but it's interesting and exciting. And I've come to understand myself a bit more and thought, because if I look back, I think, yes, I could have had a much quieter life. Yes. (laughs) Why did I do that? Why did I do that? (laughs) But actually, you know, for me, it's been um, a tremendous opportunity. It's been constantly controversial. You know, there was a Royal Commission. You know, these were hard things. But again, go back to clarity of purpose. Um, you know, other than government, banks probably are the largest economic levers in the country. Um, they're the one institution you will have a relationship with for life, and through impacting your financial well-being, they actually impact your happiness. You know It's very hard to live a satisfying um, and happy life if you are plagued by financial um, stress and difficulty. And so getting it right really matters, it matters to everyone. Um, It creates opportunities. You know, as I said, after government, it's one of the other really big levers in people's lives. Um, So getting it right, to me, matters. And that's the thing that drives me through all those, the ups and downs of what people might say or think or, you know, again, what are you here for? What do you want to get done? Keep pushing, you know, Jedi
1: mind trick. Um, What was your toughest day as a leader? (sighs) Oh...
0: I don't know that I could pick one day. Um, Terrible things happen. Mm. You know, like we had police officers shot um, and you ring the family. I mean, I think those moments are really important when someone has given their life in the service of the public. You have to do everything you can to honour their families and, you know, making those calls is pretty heart-wrenching and making sure that you get the tone of those calls right. Like no one gives you training on how to do that. And on the one hand, you're wanting to convey just all the normal human, you know, sympathy and empathy. And I had to call mothers who'd lost their sons. I've got mother of two boys. You know, you can actually know what that might you know, feel like. But also to do it in a way that conveys... Actually, I'm ringing on behalf of the state. I'm ringing on behalf of the people of Queensland. I'm ringing from my office, this this important office, because this is how important your son's life and his contribution was. You know, to give both of those messages is I think I, I you know had to really think about that. Um, there were some decisions we had to make during the flood that were really weighty weighty decisions about you know opening the dam because. The advice was that if you didn't, the wall could burst. Um, and you knew that either way, you were choosing the least bad. You know, those decisions. And under pressure. And you had, qu- you had to do it quickly. And you had to do it quickly. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's 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 lots of those kinds of ones. Um, then there's other ones that, you know, I wouldn't put in that kind of category, but they're big decisions that you're making on behalf of a whole government and a whole
1: state. What do you um, do when you have to make a decision that's tough?
0: Well, it's different in times of crisis versus when it's not. Um, I think for me, one of the things that defines a crisis is that you are making really high stakes decisions in really suboptimal environments. You, you know, it's inevitable. You will not have all the information you would normally have. Um, you won't have as much time to consider it. You won't have the opportunity to test it with peers and to get, you know, to take soundings and toss it around with two or three people who you respect who might have different perspectives. Um, so you just have to, well, one, know how to be really decisive and just be prepared to make the call, but also know that uh, and convey to everybody else I make this call and I will carry the responsibility for having made it. You know, I'm not, this isn't going to be one that ends up in your lap. I'm making it, I'll carry it. On other ones where, the, where you're making really big decisions, where you're, you know, spending billions of taxpayers' dollars, where you're, um, you know, making changes to legislation that's going to impact people's lives, when you're lifting taxes, you know, all those sorts of big decisions. I'm not a... I don't make flash decisions unless you're in those crisis situations, but I'm not one for sort of spending weeks at it either. Um, I like to make sure I've got, I ask a lot of questions about data. If you ask anybody that works for me, say <laughs> so how many of those are there and what's the rate of that? And can you get me this? Cause I want to actually make sure I've got the facts, but also have, you know, always have people around you that you, who you think are smart. You know, I've always never been one to be challenged by having people around me who are much bigger brains than me. You know, have the big brain people around you use their brains, test them out, um, seek the views of people who you think who you know don't think like you, um, and and then make the call. Um, you know, some of those decisions they're not going to get easier. Sometimes I think people you keep the really hard ones. The temptation is to sort of put it off till tomorrow and tomorrow, and in the hope that it's going to get easier, but actually they don't. And once you get make, past making the decision and move on to implementing it. If you've made, I mean, it's not always easy in politics, but if you've made some catastrophic, you know, miscalculation, you can always backflip. Um, You can't do that all the time, but actually having, that's the other thing I think, being prepared to undo a decision that was
1: clearly not the right decision um, is hard. This isn't on the list and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but um, do you think facing a cancer diagnosis and chemotherapy and all of what went with that changed anything about your approach to big decisions or leadership?
0: That's an interesting question. Um, I think it's certainly changed me. Changed a lot about, you know, what I want to do with my life and how I spend my days. And I mean, you know, sort of a thousand little things, Helen. You know, I garden more often. You know, I find joy when flowers come out. You know, those sorts of those things sound corny when you say them, but actually they're very, very real. And I'd lived a lot of my life 24 seven, not doing those things. And, you know, when I faced the sort of terrible reality of what might happen here, that was, Those were the sort of things, you know, the spending, um, you know, times with your friends, with your family, you know, the sorts of things I do with my sons. Um, So it certainly changed me as a person. Um, I think, Possibly it's made me as a leader even more, come on, we haven't got all day, you know, Not too, hopefully not too impatient, <laughs> um, but having a sense of urgency, you know, that it is, time is limited. You get one crack at it, um, don't waste it. And I suspect that's probably come through a bit more in my leadership of pushing people. Come on, can we do it faster? Let me, let's get it done. Let's do it now.
1: What advice do you have to young women who are leading, you know, can be a small team or a really big team? doesn't matter either way. I always say to
0: young and emerging leaders, understand that you're now outside the comfort of the herd, you know, you're always the one out the front. And actually the herd's this nice, warm, cosy, comfortable place. <laughs> and out being out the front, um, it's dangerous and it's often uncomfortable but that's what makes it exciting. That's where things get done. That's, you know, that's the challenge. So I do think that there is a moment when you have to actually identify for yourself, is this what I want? You know, am I comfortable with being out in the front like this and taking all that goes with that and understanding that, you know, once someone's, once you've been promoted in a workplace up into the manager's role or the next role up, um, people probably are going to talk about you um, and, you know, criticise you at the pub at drinks on a Friday night because that's what people do. You know, it's not just about you. It's, that's what Australians do. They grumble about the boss on a Friday night over beer. That's what happens. Understand that they're probably not going to invite you to the pub anymore. You know, it's those very human things that I think I've, I've seen um, and probably more so in women that when they kind of get to that moment and they start experiencing that, they kind of want to move back. And that's the point where I think you really got to push yourself to just hang in there, just understand you'll make mistakes, understand people will criticise you, understand that, you know, it's all going to be terrible. And then tomorrow's a new day and just get up and do it again.
1: That is really good advice. (laughs) Um, As someone who often wonders, you know, whether it would be more comfortable to be in the herd um, because I, you know, I, I... You do hate the criticism yeah, and it is uncomfortable Mm. and you do imagine what they say.
0: Oh, And in Australia, that whole tall poppy thing, you know, that kind of, why have you been picked to do this course, Helen? What's so good about you? You know, that it's the minute, the minute you take that step, it's that first and second step, you know, it's not.
1: And they push you to it. They say, oh, you're amazing. (laughs) You should do this. And then you move across that imaginary line, line. Yep. And it's like And then it's all about your hair and your makeup and yeah, the size of your yeah, shoes and, and
0: you've got tickets on yourself. And yeah. but it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Uh, again, if you really understand what it is you want to do
1: and why you want to do it, and you've got what it takes when you know, you just gotta keep going. Anna Bly, always fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining the Future Women Leadership Series. Thank I you, look Helen. look forward to seeing what you do next. Uh, but congratulations on your work with the um, banking sector. Thank you. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson.